listening to a podcast from JNNP. I'm Harriet Vickers, and thanks for joining me for this month's JNNP podcast. For this edition, I got advice on the tricky diagnosis of conversion disorder for both neurologists and psychiatrists. Richard Canan is at the Department of Psychological Medicine at the Institute of Psychiatry, and he talked to me about his criticism of the formal diagnostic criteria, as well as his practical insights for clinicians. If anything, neurologists probably go too far in uh, investigating it because they are so worried about getting it wrong. More of Richard's thoughts later. But firstly, Vicky Goodwin, a physiotherapist who's now at the Peninsula College of Medicine and Dentistry at the University of Exeter. Spurred on by seeing those with Parkinson's turned away from falls prevention exercise programmes, with colleagues dismissing their falls as inevitable, she set up a randomised controlled trial to see if exercises would benefit these patients. Here's what she told me. So, hello Vicky, thanks very much for coming on. Thank you. So, what's the evidence at the moment for interventions to prevent falls in those with Parkinson's disease? Well, actually, at the moment, there isn't a great deal of evidence at all, hence why we uh, did this particular study. But to date, there's only one other um, study done by Professor Anne Ashman at the University of Southampton, who also looked at exercise to prevent falls in Parkinson's disease. And similarly to our own study, there was only a moderate number of people. Uh, We had 130 people. Uh, Professor Ashburn's study had 142. Hence why we're wanting to really push this forward on on the research agenda. Okay. And could you describe the the participants that you included? I'm just wondering how mobile did they have to be to, to fit your criteria? And also, did they already have a history of falls? Uh, Yes, they did already have a history of falling. One of our criteria is that they'd had two or more falls in the the previous year because this is known to be um, a risk factor for having subsequent falls. Everyone had to be mobile indoors, either uh, with or without a walking aid. But if they needed the assistance of another person to actually mobilise, then we did actually exclude them or if they had any other health problems that meant that they struggled taking part in exercise. So if they had very severe pain um, or had um, marked cognitive problems where they couldn't actually follow instructions to take part in a group exercise session. Uh, But we tried to keep the criteria very broad because uh, as a practicing physiotherapist, these are the sorts of patients that I'm referred to see. So it's quite important to try and have a pragmatic approach to the sort of people that we included. And and what was the intervention? What were you actually getting the patients to do? Um, Group exercise uh, that comprised uh, mainly strength and balance training exercises. And this was based on a lot of the research done with older people to prevent falls, so not those that specifically had Parkinson's disease. And all the evidence shows that strength and balance training can help prevent falls in in, in older people. So we've tried to use that evidence and assess this with people with Parkinson's disease. So uh, half of the patients received the intervention, which was 10 sessions in a group uh, led by a physiotherapist. Plus we asked people to do home exercises as well, twice a week. And all of these exercises were progressive. So they got challenging, more challenging as the weeks went by. And the control group that we had, they had usual care. So if they already were receiving physiotherapy or other interventions, and we didn't interfere with that. Sure. How how tailored um, did you make these the intervention and these exercises? 
each of the physiotherapists that uh, were delivering the exercises, we have five of them in total. I did training with them with the menu of exercises that we included, but within that they had scope to uh, progress individuals, depended on how the person sat in front of them was that day. So. We know that people with Parkinson's disease can be quite different in what they're able to do. They may have other health problems like uh, an arthritic knee. So they were able to tailor these interventions within the scope of this menu of exercises that we had. And we did actually um, go along and, and watch each of the physiotherapists in practice delivering a class uh, to see if it actually fit within the menu of exercises that we prescribed. But within the menu, they were able to tailor it to individuals and to their, to their group setting. And certainly that's the, the evidence from the older person's literature, is it needs to be tailored to that individual and, and the particular problems and difficulties that they are having. And could you give us an overview of the study, basically what you did and, and what your outcome measures were? Um, yes, it was a randomised control trial and half of the people were randomised to receive the treatment um, and the other half uh, to the usual care alone. And the sorts of outcomes that we measured were, uh, one, the number of falls people were having. Um, and so people kept a weekly diary um, that they sent back to us by post each week, recording any falls and any injuries that they may have sustained. But we also did assessments with them uh, before they started um, the exercise program. We recorded everyone again at the end of the exercise program and then 10 weeks later. And we looked at things like their balance, looking at their mobility. We looked at whether they were fearful of falling in their confidence. We looked at quality of life. And we also looked at their physical activity levels um, using a measure that looks at both um, physical activity around the house, so activities of daily living, but also more recreational physical activity, so going out, doing walking, and things much more out in the community. So what, what did you find in terms of falls? Uh, well, specifically for falls, we found um, if you looked at, um, at the control group on its own, the number of falls over the study, uh, we divided it into three 10-week periods, um, stayed fairly consistent for the control group. But actually for those that took part in the exercise group, there was a gradual reduction in the number of falls that were reported. But when we actually compared the intervention and control group, um, it wasn't a statistically significant difference, possibly due to the fact that we hadn't recruited um, as many patients as we'd hoped to in the study. We were limited by... Um, the timescales and the funding that we had. So we recruited as many as we could within the timescale. So that may have been a factor why we weren't able um, to show this statistically significant difference. Okay. And did you find any um, statistically significant differences with regards to the secondary measures? Yes, we did. Um, in terms of the balance that we looked at using the Berg balance scale, um, we found that at the end of the intervention that there was a, a significant difference between groups um, in terms of their balance, but also this was maintained when we followed them up a te uh, 10 weeks later. Um, we also found a, a difference in fear of falling at the end of the intervention period, but by the time we got to the follow-up, um, this difference had disappeared. And then the other outcome that we found a statistically significant difference was in recreational physical activity levels um, that was only different between the groups at the follow-up. 
uh, but not at the end of the intervention period. So the main thing was, was that we showed an improvement in balance and this was able to be maintained and we'd ask people to continue the home exercises even after the group exercise had finished and this may have contributed towards maintaining this, this sort of improvement in their balance. So given that you've got some positive indications and results in this study but you weren't able to cement that... Um it helped to prevent falls. Do you have any plans to, to investigate this further or follow the study up? Yes. Um, I mean, we showed a good indication that, that improvements are possible uh, with people with Parkinson's disease in terms of falls and, and some of these other outcomes. And um, we've also done a, an economic evaluation um, that's currently being reviewed for publication at the moment that sits alongside this study. Um, there's also some other studies going underway uh, in Australia at the moment that are looking at similar interventions. Uh, one's just finished, and but they haven't published yet, and one's still ongoing. Um, and then slightly bigger studies than the two that have been done in the UK. They've both got about 200 participants in each of those studies. But here in the UK, um, I'm actually involved in developing a, a large multi-centre study um, looking at falls prevention that builds on the, the work that Professor Anne Ashburn's done as well and actually looking at trying to do a much bigger study that hopefully overcomes some of the um, difficulties that we had both in this study and, and the study that she undertook in terms of recruiting people. Um, so we're looking at doing a much, much bigger study and trying to take this forward so we can actually find out for sure whether these exercise interventions are effective at preventing falls with these people, but also whether they're cost-effective as well. Well, thank you very much for, for coming on and talking to us about this, and good luck with uh, your future paper. Hopefully we'll see some more of this research in JNMP in the future. That's great. Thank you very much for inviting me to talk to you. This month's Editor's Choice paper is an in-depth look at diagnosing conversion disorder, which it describes as problematic. Co-author Richard Canan from the Institute of Psychiatry at King's College London is with me on the line to talk about his advice for neurologists and psychiatrists on this issue. So hello Richard, thanks very much for, for coming on and talking to, to me about the paper. My pleasure. So first off, what are the, the current criteria for diagnosing conversion disorder? Well the criteria that I will give you are psychiatric criteria. So these are the criteria that appear in the ICD and DSM. But fortunately for us, they both say more or less the same thing, which is that there are four criteria. The first one is that the patient must have symptoms that appear to be neurological. Specifically, they must be motor symptoms, sensory symptoms, or involve loss of consciousness. There must be no evidence that there is a neurological explanation for that. There needs to be associated psychological stressors or uh, a psychosocial background that allows the psychiatrist to understand the condition. And they can't be feigned. They can't just be conscious simulation of illness. With the criteria being a bit vague and, and leaving an awful, awful lot up to the clinician, how practical and how useful are they? Well, I think the criteria themselves are not of enormous practical value, by which I mean I think they're often ignored. Psychiatrists who are working in this field have to make a decision when the neurologist has decided that this patient uh, 
doesn't have a neurological explanation for their symptoms and thinks it's a conversion disorder, the psychiatrist really has to decide whether they do or not. Now, he's supposed to, to do that, decide whether he can understand their symptoms in psychological terms and decide whether or not they are pretending to be sick. But because there's no very foolproof way to do that, in my experience, and I have worked at the two leading centers for diagnosing this condition, I think, the psychiatrist is inclined to ignore the criteria and say, well, if it looks like conversion disorders to the neurologist, and I think they've done a sufficiently thorough investigation, and I am not otherwise concerned, then I think they would tend to ignore both the feigning criterion and the psychological criterion and call it conversion disorder. Now, having said that, uh, a common problem reported by neurologists is that they refer to psychiatrists who are presumably uh, general psychiatrists, let's say, or psychiatrists who are not more familiar with conversion disorder, who simply send the patient back and say, I can't find anything psychiatrically wrong with the patient. So certainly for some neurologists dealing with some of these patients, with some psychiatrists, it looks like there is a problem and it might be to do with the criteria. Okay. With the difficulties in, in diagnosing this disorder, do we have any evidence or idea of um, if it's frequently misdiagnosed or if people do come in and are, are feigning and it's missed? Well, I guess there are several ways in which it could be misdiagnosed. The one that the neurologist obviously worries about is that they have missed something, that the patient really does have a channelopathy, multiple sclerosis, something that they just haven't picked up and uh, is later revealed to their embarrassment. These things do happen, and there was a terribly influential paper from the 1960s suggesting it happened very often, uh, what's usually called the Slater paper. Recent studies, I have to say, have not confirmed that. In fact, quite the reverse. They've shown that it's, from a neurological point of view, not misdiagnosed, certainly no more commonly than uh, other conditions that they routinely treat. If anything, neurologists probably go too far in uh, investigating it because they are so worried about getting it wrong. For a psychiatrist, the question of whether they get it wrong in the sense of whether they call it a conversion disorder, but in fact it was simply an unexplained paralysis for another reason, well, it's difficult to understand what those other reasons might be if it's not neuropathological, other than that the patient might be pretending. We don't have any good data on how often people pretend. We think that it's rare for people to pretend to be sick. The way it's usually uncovered if it's present is because it goes to court in some way and then private investigators are involved or something like that. But that, of course, is a very, very small minority. So I would say on all counts, the diagnosis is, is usually sustained and it would be rare for it to be overturned. So what would be your advice for clinicians who, who do feel a bit un, unsure about making this diagnosis? Perhaps you could talk a bit about from the, um, the neurologist's point of view. Yes. In the UK, at least, the impression I have is that neurologists tend to be overscrupulous in the exclusion of neuropathology rather than dismissive of patients, no matter how sure they are that they have a conversion disorder. So I think neurologists usually can tell pretty quickly 
whether someone has a conversion disorder or whether it's going to turn out to be uh, organic, but they still go through their tests with some rigor. My advice to neurologists would be that that is probably excessive, but that they can have confidence that they are that they are not uh, missing anything with any greater frequency than anything else. But I understand that it's of great concern to them. Neurologists have, in private, described this to me as uh, as serious as misdiagnosing uh, a terminal illness or something like that. But uh, the truth is that it might be embarrassing for them, but they're unlikely to get that mistake. And uh, with a decent relationship with a psychiatrist, it needn't be a disaster if they do. And, and what about psychiatrists? You said earlier that they often send them back to the neurologist saying, well, you know, are you sure there, there isn't anything there? Do you have any advice for them? Yes. Well, <laughs> I, I have been puzzled by that. I, I work somewhere where there's a lot of neuropsychiatry and where conversion disorder uh, is still seen with some regularity. And I recently saw an article looking at psychiatric presentations in Iraq where it showed that still about one in seven patients seen in psychiatric wards has conversion disorder. But the truth is, I think in the UK, for most psychiatrists, they will not see it unless they work in a, a general hospital. So I think it's perhaps understandable that most psychiatrists have really forgotten that it exists. But my advice to them when they get a referral from a neurologist would be to take it seriously. The, the concern that the neurologist may be missing something is almost certainly unfounded. Obviously, if the psychiatrist spots some gap in the neurologist's investigation or has some reason to suspect they have not been as thorough as they usually are, then they would be right to challenge it. But psychiatrists do need to be aware that conversion disorder is every bit as common as it used to be. Really, when neurologists in this country are referring patients with what looks like conversion disorder, it almost certainly is. And what about at the other end? Would you like to see the, the DSM or the ICD criteria change for conversion disorder? Yes, I would. Those two criteria that I mentioned, the criteria that requires the psychiatrist to be able to understand the patient in terms of their psychosocial problems and to require the psychiatrist to exclude feigning before making the diagnosis. They both make a certain kind of sense. In fact, they remain important ways of thinking about conversion disorder, but they are hopelessly unreliable. They're not practically possible in most conditions. There is no way available to an NHS psychiatrist to routinely decide whether or not someone is pretending to be ill. And even with all the time in the world, you can't be sure that you're going to get to the psychological bottom of a patient's problems, even if there is such a thing. So when we have looked for stressors and have taken as long as psychiatrists usually do, let's say an hour or two, we only find them um, in a minority of cases. When people have looked at them with research instruments, they find them with much greater frequency. But as a clinician, 
that's not really something that is open to you routinely. And even then, they don't find them 100% of the time. So insofar as there are currently requirements, if that was taken seriously, that would mean that most patients who are currently being diagnosed with conversion disorder couldn't be because the psychiatrist would not, with confidence, be able to establish either of those two criteria. And therefore, simply on the grounds that they are uh, impossible to fulfill in most cases, uh, I don't think they can, they can really be held up as, as practical. I think they need to be downgraded from criteria where they are required, as they currently are, to something, just to remind psychiatrists of their existence. Great. We've only touched on a lot of what's in your paper, so um, if listeners want to, to go away and read more, it's um, open access on jnmp.bmj.com. Um, so, Richard, thanks ever so much for, for coming on and telling us more about it. Pleasure. And as ever, those papers are both available freely online. For more extras from the journal, don't forget the blogs page, blogs.bmj.com forward slash jnmp, and also our Twitter feed, twitter.com forward slash jnmp underscore bmj. Next month on the podcast, I'll be delving into papers on psychogenic Parkinsonism and also visual attention and delirium, so come back then. Thanks for listening. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.